Stephen, tell us more about how you love listening to Foucault. <laughs> well, I guess to be clear, I was listening to like Foucault scholars talk about Foucault, so it was at least a little bit adjacent, or quote unquote scholars. I didn't check to see any of their, any of their credentials, but they were all saying vaguely the same things. So I think I got a decent image. And no, I mean he is important enough. Like he is cited widely enough that I think it is actually good to at least have some understanding of his works, uh, if, if for no other reason than to just be able to answer them. Uh, but I am kind of glad I did listen to it because, like, it's funny because when you, when you listen to an idea, a lot of times you're like, oh, wow, that's actually a really interesting, compelling idea. And then after a while, after some thought, you start kind of seeing some of the holes. It, very similar experience to, to watching Star Wars 8. Um, with Foucault, like, he, he, he develops this whole narrative about power. And then, it, and it sounds really compelling. And then you take two steps away from it and look at it and just like, that. no, you're just being cynical. Like, you're... Like you're you're applying these grand theories and they have absolutely no evidence. And it, it, I don't know. It's just it's a, it was a very bizarre feeling. But I I think I still am technically glad I listened to a bunch of Foucaultian gibberish. Yeah, I mean, my thought is that he is pretty prevalent, so it's good to know something about him. I mean, it's it's hard to avoid him because he certainly got around in his day, um, at the very least. But yeah, I mean, in terms of Foucaultian scholars like you know who really knows what their credentials are because all of the history and stuff that they cite is all made up anyway the real test is is is, is to see if they spend most of their time lobbying to lower the age of consent laws that's the real mark of a true Foucaultian scholar but um those are few and far between thankfully well it's also i mean it's just naturally difficult to uh to become a Foucaultian scholar because that is the the kind of main bar and then also you have to know what the hell he's saying and nobody does take it till you make it yeah, well, I mean, I knew someone, I guess it was when I was in England, another student who lived in the same house was studying, was in the same politics tutorial as I was. But she was all about Foucault. Everything was Foucault. And I, I also could not understand it. And she's like, no, is you can supply him to everything. I'm like, that doesn't make him good. It, yeah, I, I still never understood the appeal, especially when we got to become friends. And I'm like, you're really not a Foucaultian in, in any sense of like, I don't know, I, I don't know. It, it, it was, she was so distant from Foucault's actual thoughts in practice and in her perspective towards life, but then wrote about him exclusively. Um, I think it's more of an image thing than actually liking the ideas. Maybe it's similar to us in McIntyre. I don't know. Like he's great, but also we recognize that he's horribly impractical, but we just cling to him needlessly, not needlessly, but affectionately. I, I unironically like him. Like, yes, I, as far as practicality is concerned, no, I mean, he, he's the one that convinced me virtue ethics was what's up. I mean, all sure, I'm supposed uh, yeah. to do is convince you that Panopticon is really what's up or what's bad with what's... society and also that you should lower the age of consent. Like, those are the two things he's going to provide you. That and a bunch of incoherent gibberish about men's bodies. Did you know, you, you knew that I wrote my, the like, the research paper... Uh, part of the tutorial on Foucault, right? No, I didn't. Wait, really? Yeah. Well, it was out of spite because I got really annoyed at like people writing him. So then I and and that's when I learned that you shouldn't write things out of spite because I I ran out of gas so fast. So I was like, I just I hate this. I um yes yeah yeah that sounds that sounds very painful. Although to be fair, I actually avoided reading any Foucault because uh, my question was about more how does he make his arguments in the field. So it was like. It was partially just because I didn't want to, uh, but it was it was all secondary sources. <laughs> <laughs>
wrote an entire paper about Foucault and never read him. Mm-hmm. Much like the, all the Foucault scholars. That's how I've preserved yeah. myself. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sam. And we're coming at you in the new year, a couple months in, uh, very late, but ready to get back into the groove of things. Isn't that right, gentlemen? That it is. It's been too long. Happy New Year. Yeah, well, actually, uh, about half of the impetus of this was uh, getting kicked out of my office a couple days ago and going to the Air and Space Museum, which then reminded me of the uh, space-themed podcast that we did, and I listened to it on the Metro back, and it was so good. I was like, man, we need to do more of these. So here we are, back again, the final kick in the seat of our pants to force us to crawl out of our hidey holes, writing code, dealing taxpayer money, whatever else we do in our professional lives. It's it's time to to, to stop all of that and do what's really, do what's really important, uh, which is, of course, podcasting. But before we get to that, Sam, what are you drinking right now? I'm having a nice warm cup of, of tea. This is the Trader Joe's Organic Pomegranate White Tea with sugar. It's very nice. I've enjoyed this one, and it's low caffeine, so I'll actually be able to sleep tonight um, after drinking it. Very nice. Uh, Mr. Steven, how about yourself? Uh, I'm actually doing the same, or I, I guess I should rather say I was doing the same in the conversation uh, before this. I accidentally like drank all of the tea, and so now I have nothing. But I was drinking fruity tea. Oh, well, uh, it seems to be shame on me, because I just assumed, given this is our first podcast of the new year, that everyone would come laden with, you know, fancy scotch or something. So I went and made, it's literally like, just like two drops of an old-fashioned of uh, equipment that, you know, I, I grabbed in a hurry as I fled my, my condo because the floors are being redone. So I'm at a hotel right now, but I grabbed just a few ingredients and I just have a few drops that were just, you know, meant to be like honorary tokens to whatever better drinks you guys were having. But it looks like I'm the top dog tonight after all. Uh, so I'm just stuck yeah. with boring tea. Cheers. Cheers. I would cheers you, but I don't, I don't. Now I, I I don't even have tea. I have nothing. And I see it. The problem was I I boiled water, but I I like the kettle. Apparently I I took it off before it was done and poured and you know poured myself some some water and it had it like it hadn't heated up enough. So I had like lukewarm tea that was just too easy to 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 sip. The heat you know if it if, if it's hot enough then it kind of is a natural restraint. But uh, I didn't have that natural restraint, so just gulped it all down. Sounds like you could have used something to help warm up that water to heat it up a little bit. Maybe a fire, maybe something burning, maybe a tiger tiger burning right in the forest of the night. That's right. Our topic today is chapter four of our excellent book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Chapter four, Unacknowledged Legislators, Wordsworth, Shelley, and Blake. Um, Before we get right into the meat of this argument, picking up from where we left off with Rousseau ever so long ago, uh, I just wanted to get into the mood to like, what are we actually talking about here when we talk about the Romantic Poets? Because I'm sure many people have heard them at some point, read them at some point, but I just picked a few poems, uh, all pretty well known, and I figured we'd just run through them just to, so, so that we're in the headspace of these people uh, that Truman is, is going to be talking about uh, in this chapter. So let's start with Wordsworth. Sure, and I'm probably the least familiar with Romantic Poets. This is a, I think I've read a little bit of Wordsworth, but not much, so this is exciting. Anyway, this is a, the world is too much with us. The world is too much with us, late and soon. 
Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon, this sea that bears her bosom to the moon. The winds that will be howling at all hours are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant lea, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn, have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his three torn. I think technically you'd say wreathed, but that's fine. Okay, well, whatever. You know I don't know poetry, so. (laughs) Yeah, English major's coming out right now. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Wait, Brevin, you were an English major? You don't have to remind me. (laughs) (laughs) I live with it every day. I created this hell for myself. All right, the uh, second poem we shall be reading is Ozymandias by Percy uh, Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Uh, And our third poet of this Uh, chapter of this three is William Blake. Okay, and this is The Tiger by William Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? In what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Amen. Uh, And so those are our three poets we'll be talking about in this chapter, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Let's start off where we ended off, which is with Rousseau. And there were a few things that Truman wanted to pull through into the romantics, because in his story that he's telling, the romantic poets pick up where Rousseau left off. So the things we are left with from Rousseau is that the real identity of an individual is to be found in their inner psychological autobiography, that behaving authentically is being in tune with this inner self, and that society is basically a corruption of that inner self. You know who you are, but society tells you who you're not, and that's what makes you bad. So the question that Truman wants to ask is, how does this idea go from, you know, basically being the musings of a French weirdo to being something that all of society basically accepts as rote, perhaps even unspoken? Uh, And the answer that he gives without debating the definition of it too much is romanticism. And there's a lot of discussion potentially to be had here, but he's interested in the strand of the of that family of ideas that manifests in the poetry of the time. And he's going to look at English poets in particular, the Romantic poets, 
because he views them as having several key aspects to their project that pull from Rousseau's ideas consciously or unconsciously and make them a bit more practical, more popularizable uh, via their their work. The parts that they are going to pull out is that society is corrupt. There's corruptions in society, that the truth and authenticity is found in nature in, in various ways, and that this is accessible via an inner psychology, that you can access your true self via interaction with either rural life or with nature, depending on the poet that you're talking about. And because this is what happens uh, when you interact with nature, when you in interact with it through poetry, aesthetics becomes an ethical task because it helps align your correct true self, your correct sentiments with the universal that is found in nature through art. So poetry then can become political as well. It can become revolutionary because this true self that's been corrupted by society as it emerges from its, you know, uh, corrupted cocoon is an attack on everything that's organized against it. So organized Christianity, you know, uh, and is in favor of political liberation, sexual freedom, etc. So starting with Wordsworth, who we, who Sam read for us, and you saw in that poem, a lot of hints of that corruption, how little we see in nature that is ours, that he wishes he were a pagan so that he, he could see the wonders of nature instead of being corrupted by society. And his expressivist poetry was the form, which is the idea that poetry arouses excitement, that it's the way that the words are constructed that's important, and it makes what they describe significant. The experience of poetry is the key point. This is in contrast to other ideas of poetry, where you would say that poetry is great if it describes great things. But what the romantics will do is describe often, and in Wordsworth's case, in, in, in particular, very simple things, but in dramatic ways that will basically make you view these things uh, with a new sight that you didn't have before, as opposed to focusing on things that are important in and of themselves, such as a big battle, or I guess I should say, things that society would tell you are important. And so to this end, poetry is the spontaneous overflow of these powerful feelings. And poets pass these epiphanies on to the rest of us. They help us connect to the universal, to the nature, help us rediscover ourselves, become better people. And that way, it's an ethical project. And a good part of his project comes from his time, where you had the rise of urbanization, which he saw as a bad thing, you know, completely accurately, thinking that cities are horrible and awful and suck your souls away. In this, he was completely right. You know, organized society and its specialization, monotony, the vice when many people gather in large cities, financial stuff, Wall Street, all that stuff, you know, is deleterious to human nature. So Wordsworth will find the rejuvenation of the human spirit in the rural, outside the city. A Wordsworth contemporary, William Hazlitt, uh, argued that it was the rise of rationalization and scientific precision that necessitated poetry to rise, basically as a counterforce to undo some of the damage that was being done by that. And, and Wordsworth was very much in this camp and advocated to that end, you know, a return to nature, to rural life. Uh, he would say that the city creates a convincing but fake veneer of what human life should be. It's not universal. It's not real. It's not true. It's not accurate to human nature. It needs to be stripped away you know, by like buying Patagonia sweaters and going on long hikes and, you know, going out to an Airbnb on the farm. You just need to, you know, get into the forest and get back in touch with yourself. Shelley, on the other hand, was Wordsworth's younger contemporary, and he was much more radical. So instead of rural life, you know, the return, it's the raw natural power, beauty, and sublimity of nature. 
So instead of seeing beauty in a country road and a sheep herder, for example, a shepherd, Shelley would see it in a storm, for example. And he was also much more political than Wordsworth, or maybe more accurately, he died before he could become a reactionary, like all good people do uh, in their old age, which Wordsworth did. In a storm, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, okay. But I don't, I, I didn't care enough to check if I'm being completely honest. Uh, but the, <laughs> the key image with Shelley here that Truman highlights is the Aeolian lyre, which is an instrument basically that you put in the middle of a forest. It's a bunch of pipes and the wind blows over them and makes them make a sound without any discernible player. It's just the wind going over the pipes, making this noise. And to Shelley and to Truman interpreting Shelley, the poet is just this, expressing the forces of nature as they're moved by them. It's the universal that is basically, it's the universal that they're channeling out uh, to help remind people of what they know all along, that society has corrupted out of them. The poet is the person who can access it and, and give it to you. The people. The poet is a priest. And in that role, poetry is a teacher, but not didactically. He was against didactic poetry. But instead, poetry is very much about that spontaneous overflow of emotions and communicating that. It's about shaping your sentiments. It's about changing how you view the world at your core, perhaps even in an inexpressible, unconscious way. It's a sentimental morality that you're teaching people, that that's really at the core and to undo all of the damage that, you know, rationalism, scientific precision has wrought you need to change people's hearts, uh, to put it in a nice way. Uh, as I mentioned, Wordsworth grew up, grew old, saw the French Revolution, saw, saw the tragedy, so he became a, a reactionary like normal people. Uh, but Shelley died young. Although, to be fair, he did have one very interesting concept, which Truman highlights. The poet as priest was meant to be an alternative to violence. It was meant to be a quieter revolution, shaping the public to revolt, uh, but not with violence, I ideally, against, you know, the false prison of all the things that bind us, like marriage and religion and norms and government. And the other thing that's distinct about Shelley that ties into the the strand of the romantics that, tr that Truman wants to pull uh, forward to the present is unlike Wordsworth, which was nostalgic in a way, it was go back to the rural life, go back to small towns. Shelley goes straight to nature, and it's just you and nature as an individual against all of that. And that's a distinction uh, that pulled forward into his politics, much more revolutionary. And it's for that reason that uh, Shelley coined the phrase that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Truman goes on a bit more about Shelley and kind of expands upon his idea that religion is a means of manipulation. Uh, a way the, that the powerful preserve their power. And in fact, goes so far as to say that God himself is the highest form of tyranny. He's he's kind of the apotheosis of all human uh, de depotism. And Shelley views religion, political oppression, and sexual restrictions as all highly connected. He's, I I must have missed this the first few times I read this because I, I didn't realize kind of how, uh, how anticipatory, maybe is the right word, Shelley was, that a lot of this, a lot of his thought is going to show up again and again in a lot of the thinkers that we see in the in the subsequent chapters. Um, so he's not alone in, the sense, in this sensibility, though. Um, he's just kind of the voice of the time. Truman quotes, and I'm going to absolutely butcher this name, uh, Faramir's Dabola, something, uh, History of Sex, as noting three developments in the 1700s. One, the increasing importance ascribed to conscious, basically understood as natural instinct, as a reliable guide to moral behavior. 
Two, a growing public distaste for judicial punishment of consenting heterosexual transgressors, such as adulterers, of standard moral codes. And three, the rising view that the moral laws based on external authorities, such as the Bible, might in fact be social constructs and actually stand problematically over against the natural laws governing human nature, end quote. These shifts bring religion, specifically Christianity in the West, as antagonistic to any sort of sexual reformers. Carl Truman goes on to say, quote, when healthy sexual activity is considered a matter to be judged by instinct, then inevitably those institutions that disagree with such will be seen as problematic and as hindering human authenticity and freedom, end quote. Shelley, as well as, ironically enough, his father-in-law, William Godwin, both found ma uh, marriage itself to be inherently problematic, bringing about the context for jealousy, subterfuge, and social corruption. Recall that social institutions don't prevent, but rather cause evils. And Godwin held that marriage as a social construct represents, quote, unreasonable bondage and oppression of all the individuals involved, end quote. Shelley anticipates Marx as seeing the marketplace as determining all social relations and preventing freedom. Freedom cannot be had with the marketplace intact and monogamous marriage being the norm. This won't be the first time we see this bizarre mishmash of Marxism, or proto-Marxism in this case, and sexual politics. Truman points out that this view of relationships is ther therapeutic, that is, the goal of a relation, specifically a sexual one, is to bring about a desired psychological state, not one of any sort of external value such as procreation or submission to God or some other moral higher order. Ultimately, Shelley states that religion and chastity constitute real moral evil and bring about misery. Note the parallels here. Parallels here. In, in which similar accusations are leveled at Christian Christianity's moral codes. Quoting Tr uh, Truman here, bringing up some of these accusations. Quote, calls for chastity are an unrealistic response to promiscuity and lead to cruel sexual repression, an irresponsible lack of proper sex education in schools, and the demonizing of unmarried teenage mothers. Opposition to homosexuality stirs up pre prejudice, forces gay people to live a lie, and can even lead to mental illness and suicide, end quote. Next, Truman discusses William Blake as having si similar sensibilities. He quotes the Garden of Love as being emblematic of Blake's ideas. And it's, uh, it's worth quoting it in full. It's fairly short. I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I never had seen. A chapel was built in the midst, where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not writ over the door. So I turned to the Garden of Love that so many sweet flowers bore. And I saw it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be. And priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. Like Shelley, like Rousseau, the natural garden is good. The human institution is what is evil. Authenticity is the goal of humanity. Restraint is sinister repression. Uh, furthermore, in, in the marriage of heaven and hell, Blake says, quote, he who desires but acts not breeds pestilence, end quote. It's important to note that Shelley and Blake aren't quite modern in that they still view sex as something that one does rather than what one is. However, they did help kick off this idea as repression of repression being oppression, that sexual behavior is related to political freedom. Truman concludes this chapter with a fascinating postscript on the literary critic Thomas De Quincey and two essays he wrote called On the Knocking of at the Gate in Macbeth, called On the Knocking at the Gate in Macbeth, and On Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts. The first has the project of trying to understand why murder is an object of aesthetic contemplation rather than simply one of horror. The short of it is that it requires one to make the murderer, rather than the victim, sympathetic. Quote, he must be a seething cauldron of complicated passions and contradictory motives so as to captivate the reader. End quote. In the second essay, he notes that murder can be held as an object of moral or aesthetic contemplation and argues that, quote, the qualities of the aesthetics of murder in any given age speak to the quality of the age itself. End quote. 
It is also argued that, that the qualities of a philosopher can be measured by if he was murdered or at the very least if there was an attempt. And it should be understood that he's being at least somewhat tongue-in-cheek with both of these essays, but underlying these essays is the point that if murders really are morally -ish interesting, that if sympathy and empathy are functions of aesthetics, not ethics, that if indeed the murderer can be made sympathetic by placing him in such and such a light, and if the core of ethics really is our sentiments, not objective moral law, then it is really our aesthetic sense that becomes the arbiter of what is good or bad. Taste can drive what we think to be right and wrong. See McIntyre's discussion on emotivism. And that about wraps it up. Fascinating how subtle the shifts are. Like, the, some of what these guys are saying here is pretty, I would say, a good reaction to Rousseau and a good reaction to the stuff that you see in, like, the early Enlightenment, where they're like, no, like, beauty is still important. Um, nature is still important. You know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and almost revolting against the idea of the social contract you see in more Locke, which Truman didn't really get into. Also Rousseau, but I guess Locke's more famous for that. But even, even as they're reacting in a way that seems good, and Brevin, I know that you love romantic poets because poetry is, is stunning in some respects. Um, underneath it, it's, it's it's, it's, the ideas are continuing to take a very steady and... Um, consistent descent down into um, meaninglessness. Yeah, I mean, it is clear that something needed changing. And I, I mean, it is also clear from reading Master and His Emissary. I mean, he went on and on about how great the Romantics were in responding to a lot of this Enlightenment uh, ideology that had been really moving culture in a worse direction. So it, I mean, it's almost frustrating in that, yes, they clearly had an idea of what was wrong. It's just, it's just unfortunate that Instead of pointing to, hey, our cities are becoming faceless monstrosities, they said, hey, you know what's, what, you know what we need? We need to dissolve marriage. We, we need to get rid of the church. It's like, oh, so yeah. close, guys. So close. I would say it's not very close, but uh, good try. Well, okay, yes, I, I, I suppose yeah. so. So, so close in that you had, you had, you had a good idea of what the problem was, and then you just completely went, uh, went left field or whatever the saying is it is it is kind of funny in that um and uh, again we'll get into this especially with some of the the 19th uh, the 19th century thinkers or not 19th 20th century thinkers with a lot of the sexual revolutionaries i guess i i have a weird like almost sterile view of them of like ah yes these were these were great intellectual thinkers and then like when you read about their lives it's like oh no this is what i would expect from people who are sexual revolutionaries just like no they just want to sleep around a bunch like they that like oh that makes a lot of sense no wonder they were so vested in this project they just wanted to sleep with everything that moved and so like it, it was definitely kind of eye-opening like never meet your heroes and i guess never meet your villains either uh because like yeah no they weren't nearly as like cool or like armchair philosophery as i thought it's like no they're just kind of running around sleeping around yeah poets musicians revolutionaries them and their uh historical relationship to non-monogamy really begs the question just why are they so horny <laughs> because yeah th th that really is a fascinating theme so i you know Rousseau, we talked about uh in in part for you know sending all his children off to orphanages um like an absolute psychopath uh shelley and various other ones you know were moderately better in some respects but uh i mean you know there's very much not i mean part of shelley's history i believe is abandoning his wife uh for another random woman who then 
despaired while pregnant and drowned herself in a river. It was her sister, not a random woman. It was oh, her good. sister. And then further battles of uh, for custody and them all, you know, ending up in convents and abandoned at various times and then, you know, dying on a boat trip or trying to swim across a lagoon or something. I don't really know, but a boat trip. Boat trip. It is quite interesting because you were saying that maybe something sterile to them, something sort of so close and yet so far, because uh, in many ways, I mean, they, they do have a lot of truth to them in, in terms of, you know, uh, sort of a, an anti an anti-scientism uh, instinct, the desire for beauty, the desire for nature. But then on, on the other, it, it is sort of hard to figure out what to do with them because they were so wrong or naive in, in, so many other ways it's like oh yes there's a universal human nature and if we all went and stared at storms uh we could make a better society it's like and eh, no like there's something there but 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 slightly less than you think and i think that, that that also ties into just the you know the consistent and and quite interesting you know long-running battle of christian society organized christianity and its relentless defense of chastity and monogamy versus revolutionaries of all stripes and seeing you know trying to dissolve the family in various ways and these poets just being yet another uh, i mean you know rich people have always tried to do that um, or or had weird uh, complex relationships but just yet another early e example of efforts that will only continue with uh you know with with communists with with marx with that with, with everyone to follow um it, it's all an interesting the same project they all have the same enemy, which should tell you something. Slight correction. Uh, apparently, there were several uh, people, oh, several women that he was involved with that committed suicide, and I believe it was his ex-wife Harriet who committed suicide when she was pregnant, and then Mary Shelley, his then wife, uh, her half sister, killed herself after uh, apparently being very much in love with uh, Shelley. So. Yeah, this this guy uh, had a had a history wow. with uh, treating women, which I, I was talking with my my roommate, and it really is kind of remarkable that a lot of these figures, and I mean, I, I keep saying it, but we will get more into it in the twentieth century. But a lot of these figures are viewed as like heroes of the sexual revolution, which is liberating and freeing women. And it's like, man, what a what a weird way to view them. No, a lot of them are just absolute monsters to women, like they. They weren't pro women. Like they, they were actually kind of like I, I, I would say pretty anti. Like they're not acting well towards them. I also think this this brings up an interesting question that I, you know, is an eternally debated one. But separating art from artists, because uh, obviously these poems are very beautiful. I mean, I love Ozymandias. It's it's an epic poem. It, it it's very cool. It has a great concept of uh, time, dissolution, empire, the limits of human power. Blah 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 blah. Lots of good stuff there. But at the same time, the guy was horrible and his larger philosophical project as a, as a work to justify his you know uh personal you know shambolic sexual ex escapades uh is is certainly not laudatory in any sense of the word so i don't know i'm i i i'm always torn with with what to do because there are all of these figures who just the further we get from them in history the more it's just their ideas that remain that we can view in the abstract as interesting or compelling ideas 
but I I do wonder if if it's not a bad idea to bring back the you know by their fruits you shall know them test for uh, philosophies art in general. Yeah, that's a that's a difficult one because on the one hand, I actually really do kind of like the idea of death of the artist in that like the the work stands on its own and you like a coherent story will speak for itself and the author coming in after the fact and saying x y and z about it it, it just always it always struck me as often kind of ha- having some amount of objectivity that you're peeling away from a text which i which kind of irritated me but i do think you are right in that it, especially if ethics and aesthetics are linked now granted i think the romantics go far too far in saying that ethics are aesthetics but i actually do think that aesthetics can move you to the ethical in kind of a Kierkegaardian sense. Maybe, like, especially when it comes to artwork, maybe we should take a, a step back and, and start associating. Although, I mean, it is unfortunate that a lot of, a lot of the philosophers that I really do like, yeah, they had some questionable lives at times that would make it kind of unfortunate. I would, I would then be honor-bound to denounce David Foster Wallace, and we both know I'll never do that. Something, something, a millstone that causes you to sin. Well, well, not okay, well. Actually, no. David Foster Wallace. I mean, I think reading him even in the context of his life actually makes it even more interesting because he's wrestling with these ideas of like existential, like desire and and meaning, and yet we can see that in his own life he was totally bankrupt of that mm-hmm. and was and, and and so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's interesting as a project of a, of a person who was clearly suffering and was clearly inflicting evil on those around him, um, trying to figure that out, which, I don't know, that's not necessarily a bad thing to observe. To observe. Fair point, I suppose. Also, just, I, I, I certainly don't want to write off what he what he did, but just just to be somewhat into his defense, it was one individual that he had a... Sure. a, a I wouldn't even say sensibly an, an abusive relationship with that. And obviously not great. Obviously one is far too many, but it's not like he was doing this to everyone he ever met. Well, let's just say he wasn't a lady killer like Percy Shelley. Hey, but, but yeah, I, th- yeah. I think you are right. Having some amount of context of what the author was going through does give insight into their overall project. Even knowing that like brothers K was a large part Dostoevsky wrestling with the death of his son. It, mm. it it adds to things. So I don't know. What do you think? Do, do we do we no longer read uh, Shelley's poetry? Yeah, I I am so poetry is so far from my normal consumption that it doesn't make a huge difference to me. But I'm more curious what Revan's thoughts are. Yeah, I I it's I I think it is something that I'll I'll have to to wrestle with more because there is a a part of it of any work of art that is certainly separate from the author that is ser- uh, a distinct part of the element you know someone a, a very bad person can make something very beautiful that's some, that's a hard statement to argue against i think more it would be the totality of projects and the uh, the totality of a project of works across time works across uh space that that, that have a story and a, and a philosophy to them i think the way that a creator whether philosopher poet artist whatever comports themselves uh, should have a significant reflection on how seriously or how much consideration we take their philosophy as a contender in our in 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 serious ideas um you know if if someone writes lots of beautiful poetry and lots of great philosophy because they want to sleep around uh europe probably shouldn't you know take that as a very serious 
idea or as potentially any kind of a model. But we could take one-off instances of, of those poetry, uh, you know, and, and I'd say I, I would still need to think about all this or perhaps dedicate some more reading to it. But I do think in at least some sense, we can always appeal to death of uh, the author. Uh, but, you know, sometimes authors die and sometimes they are revived. And speaking of revival, I believe Sam has our article for today. I do. This is an article. It's it's probably by the most popular or most loved uh, figure in the Protestant world as an academic and active uh, pastor, Tim Keller, who's a local to, to the city. Um, this is also interesting because usually we're talking about like virtue ethics or Catholic philosophy or something orthodox adjacent or just, I don't know, philosophy in the abstract. So I'm curious to get your guys' take on a piece that's, I think, very well written but also uh, distinctly Protestant. So this is Tim Keller's piece in The Atlantic that was published just last week called American Christianity is Due for a Revival. So he starts off the article by talking about his move to New York City. Um, For those of you who don't know, Tim Keller moved to New York City in the late 1980s from Virginia, basically a plant church, um, and to to work on spreading Christianity to this city. And he points out the secularization he saw in New York at the time, where churches were being turned into nightclubs and all manner of other um, very secular and desacramentalized uses. And um, he points out how the spread has now moved to the rest of the world. He cites the very famous Pew study in 2021 that uh, signaled the rise of the nuns, how by 2070, Christians will be less than half the population in the United States. And the quickest growing demographic religiously are people who say they have no, none, no religious affiliation at all, either atheists or uh, theists. So he then asks, first of all, whether we should be concerned with this. He's writing in The Atlantic, so odds are that most people reading this are probably not Christian. So he gives a few arguments, basic arguments, in support of Christianity from a secular perspective. He points out Emile Durkheim and Jonathan Haidt as two prominent thinkers who are not Christian, uh, but who make the argument from that for the um, necessity of religion. Durkheim in particular, looking at the necessity of a collective consciousness in a society. He points out how the United States is uniquely individualist. From its very beginning, we've been an extraordinarily individualist society. And yet we've always had religion holding people together in a moral and uh, social sense while allowing us to be individuals uh, or very individual individualists in most other respects. This is many benefits. He cites a very fascinating study um, from done in Philadelphia in 2001. So 20 years ago, a study showed that uh, churches saved the government roughly $250 million in social services per year, just in the city of Philadelphia in 2001 dollars. So the safety net that's provided by churches towards cultural needs, towards social um, support, should not be underestimated. He, of course, comments that this isn't the only reason that Christianity should be supported, and indeed supporting Christianity just for its ends, is, uh, or just for the, um, the economic ends, is clearly missing the point. But there are clear benefits here. He then pivots and asks the question of, can Christianity grow again? And his simple answer is yes. Yes, and he gives five points for why this can happen. Uh, first, he's seen that it's possible to speak compellingly to non-Christians. He gives examples from his um, evangelism in Manhattan, speaking with, as he says, 
progressive atheists who have no conception of, of scripture, no conception of the gospel. And yet he's able to persuade, he's, he, by speaking into their lives in, in, and speaking in a language they understand towards the things that concern them, he's seen immense success in his evangelization. And he has some scriptural citations for how this was playing out in the time of the apostles as well. Uh, his second point for how the church can grow again, or second thing that will happen in this, is, is uh, the church will unite justice and righteousness. What he means by this is looking to the black church, where he sees traditional morality, sexuality, and the authority of the Bible um, held alongside taking an active stance against oppression. In his assessment, and I think this is pretty accurate, in white Protestantism, you generally see one side or the other. You see either progressivism at the complete expense of the authority of scripture, the true divinity of Christ, the historic creeds, any of that stuff. Or you see a church very, very based in tradition and um, attempts at holding on to, 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 to um, scriptural authority, but lacking the ability to speak much to the culture um, at large. His third point here is that the church must embrace the global church. As Christianity is declining in America, it's rising in the global south and in East Asia. And this will, um, th th these cultures rapidly are going to be supporting our Christian um, exercise here in the States. Fourth point is to, that the church needs to strike a balance between in innovation and conservation, which I, I mean, I think is true. He says that the church can't just adopt the culture at large because it will become non-unique. But in challenging times, the church has always embraced some degree of development seeing monasticism as a development against the um, fragmentation of the Roman Empire, the Reformation against corruption in the Catholic Church, or even the revival in um, 18, revival throughout the 18th and 19th, or I guess the 19th and 20th centuries to preserve Christianity uh, in the West. And the last point is uh, Charles, it's, it's to look to Charles Taylor, where he says the church has a lot to speak to the unquiet frontiers of modernity. Basically, what he's saying here is that the church answers fundamental questions about life that modernism simply cannot hope to address. Um, questions about purpose, questions about, I mean, the basics of afterlife even. But these are questions that will come up again and again, and modernism is rapidly collapsing to the point where it can't answer itself. He has a very good point here where he says that grace, the gospel of grace, is a very compelling message and a very compelling alternative to that, of, um, that given by a faceless corporation. So in order for all these factors to happen, there are three concrete moves that he proposes that the, uh, at least he says, a non, uh, a significant amount of churches are going to need to embrace and a significant percentage of American Protestantism is going to need to move towards. First is to escape from political ca uh, captivity. He identifies the uh, modern church and a modern conservative church as, quote, a demographically shrinking church that identifies heavily with one narrow band of political actors, end quote. And that is a losing recipe. They need to disentangle themselves from the simple right and left politics and actually be more concerned with the overall mission and, and message they're trying to communicate. The second is, un is um, a union of extraordinary prayer, looking to the revivals in the 19th and 20th centuries, where you saw immense um, focus on, on prayer and says that, that shouldn't be underestimated. And then finally, um, distinguishing the gospel for, from moralism, articulating moral truths fearlessly and confidently um, in the face of the culture that rapidly uh, dislikes them, 
alongside a gospel of love. So this premise is that if we do these three things, the um, other factors that he lists earlier can give hope that Christianity will not only um, continue to exist in the West, but even has a chance at revival. So I like this piece. I thought it was an it was a good articulation of of a of a distinctly Protestant um, uh, orientation towards the, this cultural moment. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts as to uh, non-Protestants? Yeah, I I liked it. I find it, I think, a little bit overly optimistic. I I see the church taking a lot of body blows, and it it just doesn't seem to know quite what to do. I, I, I will say, I find it encouraging to see thinkers like this that are starting to propose concrete solutions. Um, that, and they do seem to have their finger on the pulse of kind of what's going on, why things are starting to fall apart, why attendance is dropping. So I guess I, I, I become optimistic from that. I become pessimistic when I see a lot of the attempts. Uh, for example... The uh, He Gets Us movement, which I see as in incredibly well-intentioned and also just completely missing the mark as, as far as like this. I don't, I don't think it's, effect it's effective at all. And the, no. the church is clearly still trying to model its evangelism like the, uh, well, like a com in the form of a commercial. It's trying to do evangelism with like Hollywood techniques. And that's just, I think, a, a losing battle. You're, you're not going to win that. You're not going to outcompete oh, yeah. mega corporations. Sorry, that's just not going to happen. Uh, so I, I look at this and I think, this, I, maybe I should say, this is, I think, a step in the right direction. I think he is making a positive step forward. I'm not sure if it will be enough, enough but I'm at least encouraged to see someone taking that step. I think Keller is fundamentally right in the sense that trends are trends until they're not. Kolakowski was many people were writing about the trends of declining church attendance, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and how if it would continue on its current trajectory, you know, Christianity wouldn't exist in the United States in like, you know, 2001. But obviously that didn't happen because trends don't keep going in, in the same direction. They tend to move around. There's the famous story, I'm sure we've cited it on the podcast previously, that what is it, St. Paul's in uh, London in, uh, say, 1901, the uh, biggest Anglican cathedral in the world uh, had like one attendee on New Year's Day or on Christmas Day. And uh, contrast that to today and it's night and day. Of course, it has its own interesting struggles at present. But nonetheless, the communion rapidly expanded from that low point um, and is now, you know, you could have never predicted where it is now from from that moment in uh, the late 1800s or early 1900s. And I think it's the same uh, why, particularly with the church, particularly, and I'm speaking broad here, not uh, broadly here, not of the Catholic Church in particular, but of the church. If you do believe in the divine providence aspect to it, there's an even more black swan type of effect uh, to it than you would already attach to the church, just given its history over time. You would already have to say it has a very weird way that it moves up and down and reacts to things and just seems to randomly explode at times and then collapse at others. Uh, but if you have that divine providence angle, there's also that whole side that's just so difficult to, well, if you believe in it, impossible to track in any sort of uh, practical way to, to to think about it because it's, it's simply outside of human control. And the concept of revival is such an interesting one because it is something 
that happens and we see it happen. And I mean that in the broadest sense, whether it's a political party revival or a denomination or a, a religion um, or in other sectors of life, things do turn around and in dramatic ways. But I don't think they're usually the kinds of things that you can predict easily simply by their nature. It's or it might be that people try things repeatedly and 99.9% of them fail until something finally works. Uh, but you just absolutely never know what that is. So reading this article, uh, I guess I find it sort of bland in the end. The uh, point to Charles Taylor is, you know, always going to make me happy. Um, I don't know enough to comment on his discussion of joining uh, righteousness and um, what was it? Righteousness and, and justice. I guess I don't know enough about what he's talking about. I think he sort of euphemistic language. I don't know precisely what he means. Um, and I don't know if it's that helpful of a concept necessarily. I think he, he touches on things that are in, in the end, his final three points are, are good ones. He escaped from political activity. I, I, I think that's a, a, a very true point, especially there's, you know, good stuff you can read about the American evangelical movement and its ties to politics, which I think are, is a pretty legitimate line of argument in general, a union of extraordinary prayer. I mean, that's the X factor, the black swan type of thing that you can't even talk about. <clears throat> and um, the final point, I guess, ties into the, the distinguishing of the gospel from moralism ties into the, um, the unease that we have with m modernity as well, that we know that there's something bigger, perhaps something that we know is bigger than ourselves because we went out uh, into nature and watched a storm and we're like, damn, what if morals are a thing? You know, that that could happen. It's happened before. Um, but anyway, I've rambled. Sam, what did you have? What thought did you have? No, I, I think that that's that was um, actually unexpectedly charitable. I appreciate it. I thought you were going to I was I was expecting one of you to uh, to trash on his his uniquely reformed uh, perspectives on the gospel and of um, evangelism. But I mean, I don't I, I read it. And like, even if you took those bits out, it seemed pretty ecumenical. Like, this is pretty universal and so yeah you're you're right it's, it's there are bits that were bland and but i think it was bland in that he was pointing the things that we kind of can identify as true and so i'm not sure if we could say exactly how the revival will take place but i don't know i've seen a lot of people um like just kind of despairing over that pew study right and just be like oh we're you know we've we're, we're gone we gotta it's time to go back to the monastery like there's nothing there's nothing left for us here our our uh um and you know, we, we've lost we've lost the culture war we've lost um our place in society as christians so it's time to time to hold up and i guess his i think that he is a, a good counter to that which is like no we 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 still have a lot left and there's a lot to be hopeful for and so i think that that optimistic tone at least is really helpful especially when um living in new york city it hasn't gotten much better since 1989 uh when he was talking about uh the the um i guess the, the secularization so it's hopeful i guess i, I guess I, I like the hopefulness that it brings to, to your point on even uh, evangelization i think if anything that is one thing that done properly um catholics to a lesser extent and orthodox to a greater extent really could take a page out of the evangelical uh playbook as far as some amount of emphasis on evangelization that is part of the Christian calling, go proclaim the gospel. I think low church evangelicals, especially, put place 
too much emphasis on it. I I, mm-hmm. I think they sacrifice a lot of other really important Christian doc- doctrine on that particular altar. However, I mean, the, the kernel of it's still there. Like, no, we are supposed to go reach out to a world that needs Christ. So I, I think that's a perfectly good thing for him to do. I, I wish he had, and maybe I missed it, but I wish he had had a section dedicated to, I'm not sure what to call it other than like church branding, as it were. And that mm. right now the church just cannot escape this image of, at, kind of at best, kind of benignly naive, and at worst, like sinisterly oppressive, which we're going to get more into with Tr- with Truman. But like, those are the two kind of casual attitudes I get hmm. whenever I, I kind of encounter some sort of cultural artifact regarding the church that's come out in the last 10 years that like either benignly na- naive or uh, sinister and oppressive. And so it really needs to get out from under that. And I, I the problem is I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it, it, how it can, because again, it, it's up against cultural art or kind of cultural warriors that are, have access to much more funds and whatnot. Sorry, cultural warriors not being the best phrase for that, but perhaps like they're up against the corporations and Hollywood and just kind of a general milieu in which the church is not viewed in a favorable light. But I think that is one, that would be one massive step forward to get out from under that light. My flippant uh, three word response to what does the, the, church need to get out from under this is uh robust christian ontology but that's a pet peeve of mine we can save for a different episode but i i, I will say you know the 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 reaching out that evangelicals are, are good at it was as we all have uh mentioned on full display at the super bowl with the he gets us campaign which i thought it was fine. So bad. it was bland it was all right listen this is okay this is surprising that sam is is down on this and i'm like moderately okay with it maybe it's just because it makes the raw it is it it makes uh the most like boring annoying people mad and that's the only reason why i like it and that's you know very normal nice nice tribal american politics for you there um but i will say aoc saying that they're fascist ads i missed that but that's funny uh, no, no, just <laughs> yeah. j- just like like people from, you know, dying mainline Protestant denominations where everyone is over 65 and no one has children being like, this isn't Christianity. This is this doesn't represent the majority of us dying five of us that exist. Uh, and uh, so that was that's funny, you know, uh, but the real thing that I do think we could all agree on, it would be so much better that we lived if we lived in a country where like the U.S. Council of Bishops took out a 50 million dollar Super Bowl ad. Uh, to just like educate the faithful on the transubstantiation and just clarify some points of doctrine as opposed to like a he gets campaign like that would be fantastic. like that that's the best case scenario but we don't live in that world fair point <laughs> you just you just get bishop baron up there and it's just like all right let's all right let's, let's talk about essence and accident okay <laughs> that so actually on that note i'm glad you brought up bishop baron because i think so this is one thing that I think is starting to make some amount of headway is different uh, Christian figures kind of rising up the ranks in the internet space. Bishop Barron is wildly popular. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot, wildly popular. Uh, I mean, those are the those are the two that immediately come to mind as far as religious figures are concerned. But that I mean, I, I've encountered quite a number of uh, Orthodox individuals that that pretty much said like, yeah, I wasn't religious at all and then i went on a bishop baron kick or a jonathan peugeot kick and ended up converting and i i i think that's a positive move that 
I'm not sure. And the problem is with YouTube personalities, they're such hit and miss. They're, and all it takes is one or two things to come out and it, the whole thing is over. But so so that sort of evangelization is kind of, I mean, it, in a way it is evangelization 2.0. It's just a new sphere of influence that I think if it's done tactically, the church can start pushing forward. Problem is, then you end up with cults of personality rather than, you know, joining an actual religion. But it's it's a move that I mean I'm I'm move. I'm with you there. I mean, like you know, it's it's not. I, I'm pretty sure that the military has like the military is technically one diocese, I think, and I think there's like a bishop for the U.S. military, like as, as its own like distinct thing. I might be making that up, but it's not out of the question to just like appoint a bishop for Twitter and just like that's his flock, you know, and and it's, it's his job to 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 care for them but you know that that gets into whole things about like apostolic succession and like who's the patron saint of twitter blah 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 blah, and people would be ranting about it speaking of rant, sam what is your rant, yeah. answer i moved to the east coast a year and a half ago and about a week ago we just hit the longest that has ever gone in new york city without snow it's been over 300 and i think now 330 days without snow in new york city which is I mean, it's unspeakable. I put up with the summer where it's it's smelly and hot and we've got all manner of pests and then there's the subways and all that. But and, and, and of course, during Christmas, it was 10 degrees outside with no car. So there's enough misery, but it's all almost worth it when you go out and frisk white snow over the city. It's beautiful. Um, that's why you see that one day on every Christmas movie ever, because that's the one day that anybody wants to look at New York City. And we're not going to get it this year. I'm, I'm, I'm certain we're not going to get it because it basically is just Seattle weather now. And for the rest of February, drizzly and 40s. And I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty mad. That is indeed truly I even, tragic. I even got a new pair of leather boots for the snow to be able to strap on and, we- and, and go out there knowing that my feet were well protected and warm. Won't Man. happen. That really is too bad that you couldn't participate, you know, in the famed New York tradition after the first snow of, you know, tracing the rat tracks, you know, back to their hideouts uh, through the through the snow. But, um, you know, uh, water under the bridge or in the sewer, as it were. Uh, for my rant, I am currently living in a hotel while the floor of my condo is repaired from water damage. And I generally try to avoid breakfast these days, but I have run into an impossible trap, and that is hotel waffles because i like waffles i think they're superior to pancakes in basically every way but the biggest thing that they have is crispiness uh that is the thing that makes waffles better than pancakes now my undergraduate university uh i would go into the cafeteria and get the gluten-free waffles just because they were crispier than the gluten waffles which were still crispy but just a little bit on the soggy side but it's the crispiness factor that makes waffles good and the problem with waffles that you make at home, or at least in, in, in my family's household, uh, not mine personally, I make mine crispy, but as in my parents' house, uh, their waffles are often soft or at worst soggy, which is just miserable. And it's just like eating a brick. And so this hotel has waffle makers that spit out four tiny uh, maximalist crispy waffles that they're just like, it's like all of the outside of the waffle but that's just like the whole waffle and you get four tiny, like, 
you know, super quarter size of them. They're fantastic. But they're also like McDonald's fries. You have to eat them in about 30 seconds or they become cardboard. But they're fantastic. And so my rant is simply that I am forced to eat breakfast and I am sure I am uh, just gaining absurd amounts of weight that I will never work off because these uh, wonderfully crispy cardboard waffles are, are, are stuck to the insides of my lungs. Um, but do I regret it? Maybe. But I don't know. We'll see. The insides of your lungs? How are you eating your waffles? Inhaling them, obviously. Very ah, quickly. Fair you, enough. You, you only have 30 seconds, like I said. But Steven, your answer. Okay, so the Lorenz transform is a technique in special relativity, and it looks so simple. It looks like you just take a little gamma term that you calculate by plugging in a few parameters, and it's like, I, I mean, legitimately, it looks like algebra. And it is the most complicated, the most stupidly difficult to implement in any way, shape, or form. Like, it, it just, it makes no sense. I, so I've had a class in electrodynamics, which went over special relativity, admittedly with a really terrible professor. And then I've had a class in quantum mechanics. Hands down, quantum, way easier to understand, way easier to grasp. I, special relativity makes zero ch sense, and I'm, I'm getting really frustrated with it. What, what, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? Uh, we're playing rock paper scissors because we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's... when you said when you said it looks like algebra, I said, "Oh, that that's got to be really hard." And you said it was easy, and I'm like, "Well, shoot, like, <laughs> well, okay, like with, with a lot of like quantum stuff, but really with just a lot of physics stuff. I mean, like you start getting these really depraved like differential equations, and like it it looks complicated. You open the book for okay, guys, okay, look, I, I'm telling you, it actually looks simple, and it isn't, but it isn't. <laughs> Listen, Stephen, just go split an atom and don't make a black hole and we'll uh, be all good. I'll do what I can. Although if okay. I if I did make a black hole, maybe the, the Twitter servers would, would go under along with it and we'd be better off. Put a black hole like right under San Jose. Yep, one hundred percent. That would solve all of our problems. That yeah. I'm that I'm sure it would, but I am also sure that we have gone on long enough. Uh, so, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, we'll see you on the other side of a black hole, which is nature. So we'll uh, observe it and access universal morality. Or we'll just drown in the storm. Yeah. Black holes, fun fact, that's where things go from special relativity to general relativity, and that makes special relativity look like super straightforward. It's, ugh. I'm I, very thankful I don't have to deal with it. I'm amused that black holes are where things get general as opposed to special. You'd think uh, it'd be the other way around. They're a special point uh, for general relativity. General relativity is pretty much just gravity and time. So time is relative to speed of light, and then it starts getting affected by gravity. I know, no, I get this. I, I understand this part. Okay, yeah, so that's general relativity. Is gravity gets affected, and there's there's a little term that pretty much the higher the gravity, you you divide by, or you multiply or divide by by gravity, but pretty much as you, gravity goes infinite.